0: Good good morning. You know, in his Renaissance classic, Leonardo da Vinci captures a very specific moment from the upper room on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Now, this particular painting is, along with the Mona Lisa, probably one of the two most instantly recognizable pieces of artwork in the history of ever. It's so recognizable, it's on t shirts and coffee mugs. I mean that's how great it, you know you know art is truly art if you can put it on a coffee mug. But this is the moment at which Jesus announces to his closest followers that on that night one of them would betray him. Now, Da Vinci of course was the definition literally of a Renaissance man. He was obviously an artist, he was an engineer, he was a brainstormer, a dreamer, and a visionary of what human life could look like. And as instantly recognizable as this particular work of art is, some of the artistic, it's so common that, that some of the artistic genius is not commonly recognized. Now, just real quickly so you know, this was originally painted as a mural on the wall of a convent in Milan, Italy. This next picture, I think, kind of gives you the scope and the scale of this particular painting. It's, it was in the refectory. Say refectory. Refectory, that's a good word. That's the communal dining room in a religious institution like a convent. So as the nuns would come in to eat, this particular painting would greet them. And so you see kind of the size and the scope of it. But as we go back to the original painting, so you get a better look of it, Obviously, your eye is drawn to Jesus, who is understandably at the center of the table, the center of this picture. But da Vinci pulls some artistic and perspective sleights of hand that are so subtle, and they're so myriad throughout this whole room. If you were to walk into this room today, you would see how the painting seems to move as you move through the room. It's an amazing thing, and there are too many different sleights of hand to get into here this morning, but there's one particular perspective trick that I'm going to show you in just a second that's so fascinating. Now, when we talk about perspective in a piece of art, most of us understand, if you've ever taken an art class, that you kind of establish In a a two-dimensional drawing or painting, you establish a vanishing point so that that becomes your your perspective point and everything kind of brings you to that point to communicate and convey depth. Now, our human eyes, our eyes, naturally gauge depth perception so we can tell how far away something is from the place where we are perceiving it. Well, when you're doing that in a two-dimensional, just, you know, horizontal and vertical fashion, You have to kind of create some visual illusions, as the great Doug Henning used to call it. How many of y'all remember Doug Henning? God, we've got a young church. Oh, that's okay. I remember Doug had that kind of Muppet hair. He was a legend. But what I want to show you in this next picture is da Vinci's genius in this particular painting as it pertains to perspective. Take a look at this. These lines are all drawn. Every single perspective is drawn to the center of Jesus' face and forehead. So the lines in the ceiling, the lines along the wall, the lines on the, everything brings you to focus on the face of Jesus in this painting. Now, this masterpiece masterfully frames and puts into perspective this moment in the life of Jesus. But in the same way, the actual Last Supper perfectly frames and puts into perspective the cross and resurrection of Jesus. It's the the central contention and conviction, really, of the Christian faith that the facts of Easter, Jesus' trial, crucifixion, and resurrection from the dead— puts into perfect perspective all of life. If you wanted to kind of just, get, a, just get, a, get your arms around the essence, the essential pieces of the Christian life, it would be that, that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead puts everything into perfect perspective. And that's what we're continuing today as we move on through this teaching series that we started last week called Crossroad. As we're tracing the biblical narrative of Jesus' journey to the cross and looking at the last week of the life of Jesus for what it shows us about the work of Jesus, about who he is and about what he does even today. Now, if you've got your Bibles, I want you to look in the Bible. We're going to begin in Luke chapter 22. This whole series is piecing together the different narrative threads from the gospel accounts, the good news accounts, of Jesus' life, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what's interesting is the the recollection of the Last Supper, the the first communion meal ever served, is essentially word-for-word identical in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, John doesn't contradict any of those accounts. He just shares a different perspective. He, He highlights some other parts of that night more than the first three gospels. The first three gospels are referred to kind of as synoptic gospels. They give you a a synopsis, a snapshot of the life of Jesus. But look at what Jesus says in Luke chapter 22. Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled In the kingdom of God. Now, the first communion meal, Jesus and his closest followers are actually continuing a long standing, centuries old tradition of Israel to commemorate God's rescue of them from Egyptian slavery. This would have happened about 1,400 years before this night that Da Vinci depicts. And in this Passover meal, Israel year in and year out, no matter what, is commemorating. They are remembering God's faithfulness, bringing them out of 430 years of slavery. And as the story unfolds, as the historical facts unfold, Moses and his brother Aaron have approached Pharaoh and pleaded for the release of Israel from Egyptian slavery And as you might imagine, Pharaoh was a little more than reluctant to release a workforce of over a million people worth of free labor. And over and over again, he kept saying, Yes, you can go, but I changed my mind, no. And so that was when God decided to visit upon Pharaoh in Egypt 10 plagues to convince him to let the people go. And you can read this in Exodus chapter 7 through 12. There was you know, the Nile turning into blood, there was a plague of lice, a plague of frogs, a plague of boils, the plague of livestock, I mean, just on and on and on, until the 10th and final plague, when God commissioned the death angel to circle and travel throughout Egypt, taking the life of the firstborn male of every household. People and animals alike. But on this particular night, God commanded Israel to sacrifice a young goat or a lamb in each home and family, and to prepare this lamb and this goat for a very special meal. They were to be dressed and ready to travel before the meal started. And they would partake of this meal of the goat or the lamb, bread that had been made without yeast, bitter herbs, and salad, which bitter salad is redundant, if you've never known that before. But that was part of the menu that God prescribed for Israel. But before they prepared the goat of the lamb, they were to take some of the blood from this goat of lamb and wipe it on the doorframe of their home. And on that night, the death angel would pass over every household that had that blood on the doorframe. This is where we get the term Passover. And so this was the meal that Jesus had gathered his closest followers for there in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. But for weeks and months leading up to this meal, he had been preparing them for the central event of his earthly life. He knew that his time had finally arrived. He knew that at the end of this Passover celebration, he would end up crucified on a Roman cross. And so this night is packed with with poignant meaning and significance, not just in the moment, but historically. But it's important to remember that everything that had happened for 1,200, 1,400 years had been pointing to this moment. The, The blood of the sacrificial lamb that caused the death angel to pass over each Israelite home was pointing toward Christ, When God instituted the sacrificial system in Leviticus chapter 16 and said that there would be a day, one day of atonement where the high priest of Israel would enter into the Holy of Holies, sacrifice a bull, and sprinkle blood on the altar to atone for the sins of the entire nation of Israel, that was pointing to this moment. Jesus who would be the fulfillment of those laws, of the prophecies concerning the ultimate Sacrifice, the perfect lamb who was slain. And, and so Jesus gathers them into the room there, and, and as we go through this narrative today, we're going, to, we're going to pull out of this some principles, but I never, ever, ever want you to walk out of here with just principles because principles are fine as far as they go, but principles should always precipitate practices. Principles should always drive us to check and possibly, maybe even likely change our practices, that, that we would step back and go, okay, this is what happened. This is what God is communicating. Now, everybody should ask the question at every turn, so what? That's a good thing to ask when you're in church. Turn to your neighbor and look at him in the face and smile, even if you're wearing a mask, and say, So what? So what? Online. I'm so glad you're here. I heard you better than I heard the people in the room here. Let's try that one more time, shall we? So what? so what? There it is. Okay. I know time changed Sunday. We all lost the same hour. I get it. But so what? Now in this upper room experience at the Last Supper, there's one of the most incredible moments in the entire earthly ministry of Jesus. And and this is a moment that does come from the book of John. In John chapter 13, the Bible records one of the most telling, one of the most significant moments in Jesus's life because of the principle that it illustrates. Look at what happens in John 13, three through five. The Bible says, Jesus knew That the Father had given him authority over everything. He had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet drying them with the towel he had around him. is that amazing? I want you to think about that for just a second. For for a moment, put yourself in Jesus' sandals. I want you to think about what would you be like? What would I be like if I realized that I had all authority in the world (laughs) Now for a second, there's part of you that's kinda like, that sounds awesome. But think about it. If you wanna test a person's character, don't look at them when they struggle, look at them when they succeed. And here is the Son of God who has all authority. He knows he has all authority and he's washing feet. If that doesn't knock you out of your chair or offline, you're not paying attention. You're not really thinking this through. This is a staggering reality. He got up and washed the feet of his followers. But this is who our Jesus is. The the principle is servant leadership. Servant leadership. Now, in our day and age, we we hear a lot about servant leadership, and we've we've maybe talked a lot about servant leadership. But I think most of the time we miss the mark. Because most people who lead without serving, they, they don't get it. And you can certainly lead without serving. There, there are a lot of people. The world is full, full of people that other people are following who are not in it for the good of those that they lead. You don't have to look too far. And I'm not going to name names, but we all know. But even those who attempt to serve in order to lead, a lot of times, We miss the mark. A lot of times we talk about servant leadership, I think especially in Christian circles, and we forget the leadership part. Yes, we serve. Yes, Jesus washed feet. But he knew his responsibility. He knew that God had given him all authority, and so that authority meant that he had to go through the cross. If he had been given authority over everything, and he has, then that means by definition, he had to go through the, he is the only one, say only one. He's the only one who could go through the cross. You and I could go to the cross, but because he had authority over everything, life and death, he went through the cross to the resurrection. No one else could have pulled that off. I love it when people say, you know, Jesus was a good teacher. I don't know about the Son of God thing, but he was a good teacher. And and watch this. Look at what Jesus says here. Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. Real quick, I'm gonna ask everybody if you would, take off your shoes just for, I'm just kidding, don't do that. I just wanted to kind of create a little second of panic. Jesus cannot be just a good teacher. He can't be. Because he says, you call me teacher and Lord. He claimed to be the son of God. So he either was and is, or he was lying, or he was deluded and crazy. C.S. Lewis calls this the Lord, liar, or lunatic dilemma. Lord, liar, I I like to say he was Christ, crazy, or con man. Lewis did it well, I don't need to improve upon C.S. Lewis, but you could take any of the two. You can't say he was just a good teacher. He said some nice things. He claimed to be God. So he either is, or he was lying, or deluded. Those are our options. But he says, wash feet. This idea of servant leadership. You know who I learned servant leadership from more than anybody else? My father in law. How scary is that? I remember Julie's dad leads a a really large organization of about 17,000 plus employees. And he's been at the helm for over 30 years. And I remember one conversation that I had with Joe over Christmas one year. And I asked him this question. I said, Joe, where did you learn vision? His father had been the CEO before him. And had grown the company very incrementally. But when Joe took over, he took over an aggressive, he took took on a very aggressive growth posture. And he's grown the company exponentially since he took over. I said, where did you learn vision? This was his answer. He said, when I was given the company, I knew that I had a responsibility to our shareholders, our employees, and our customers. We had to grow the business for the sake of our shareholders who had invested in the business. And I can't tell you the number of times in the years that Julie and I have been married and I've been watching from a distance that I've heard him use the word responsibility. Responsibility, responsibility, responsibility. The job of any leader is responsibility. Responsibility. And every Christ follower is a leader. Jesus said you are to be the salt and the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. You as a follower of Christ. I as a follower of Christ. We may never lead a billion dollar corporation. But we're leading something. We're leading someone. And that means we have a responsibility to fulfill. That means that we are called to be servant leaders. The practice that goes with this principle is that we serve in order to lead. You may not even believe in Jesus. You, you may not even believe that he's the Son of God. That's, that's, we're glad that you're here or watching online. Now, we hope you don't stay there, but we're glad that you're with us. Nobody can deny the influence of Jesus of Nazareth. Just just the numbers alone of people who have chosen to follow him make him a leader. He's a leader. He's an influencer in the real sense of the word, not an Instagram sense of the word. He's a leader because he serves. But he serves in order to lead. As we've said before, Jesus Christ loves you as is Period, hard stop. And he loves you too much to leave you where you are. He will lead you. He does lead us to be more like him. The God who washed feet. And then Luke 22, 19 through 20. He took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took another cup of wine and he said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. So again, there's this, this reference to the Old Testament, this reference, this reference looking back. He's saying, You'll remember the sacrificial system. You grew up with this. Every year, the Day of Atonement, other sacrifices throughout the, throughout the year. But in this moment, the sacrificial system is fulfilled. There need never be another animal sacrifice because the perfect sacrifice has been made. And so Jesus says, come to the table. Do this in remembrance of me. The principle here is sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. And I would suggest to you that there's no such thing as non-sacrificial love. All love requires sacrifice. If you love somebody, if you really love somebody, matter of fact, do this right now. I want you to do this. Turn to your neighbor, smile, and just tell, even if you don't know them just say, I love you. And if you don't know them, don't be creepy about it. <laughs> but just, I love you. If you truly love someone, it will cost you. It, it will cost you. You will have to, to sacrifice. I, I think about one moment in particular in, in our parenting career. I remember we were driving down the road. I was driving. Julie, we were all together as a family. The, the kids were young, little. And our son, Joseph, Joseph has a, has a hair-trigger gag reflex. I mean, he just, he's <laughs> People call and go, "Joe's sick." I'm like, "No, he's not. He's just gagging. Don't worry about it." Well, on this particular occasion, I was driving, and I could see in the rearview mirror Joe going, "Ah." and I'm just going, "You got to be kidding me! This is a road trip." I was like, "Go, Julie. Do you have a bag or something?" He's getting ready to puke, and she goes, "Oh my gosh!" And so she starts scrambling through the front seat, you know, glove compartment, console, nothing. And all of a sudden, she, <laughs> and I'm going, We need something. He's getting ready to throw up, and we got hours to go. I've never forgotten this. Julie never even skipped a beat, she wheeled around and caught it in her hands. I was so grateful. Can I tell you, of all of the solutions that went through my mind, Catching it in my hand never crossed my mind. That is a mom move. Yeah. But she didn't even skip a beat. And then I was kind of like, what you going to do now? She goes, you're going to stop. Love will cost. When you love someone, you hurt. When you love someone, you celebrate. Love will cost. And nobody models this better than my Jesus. Whatever you wanna believe about God, wherever you may be in your spiritual journey right now, believe this. He was willing to sacrifice his life for you. He was willing to go through the cross for you. And so this is why we do this in remembrance. The practice of this principle of sacrificial love is very simple Love by costly giving. Love by costly giving. If you want to love people better, give of yourself generously. Be willing to pay a cost to love the people in your world. Here's the amazing thing about this practice. The more you give away, the more you receive you never, we have this pie mentality. Like if I, if I give something away, then it's gone. No, 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 not in this case. The, the more you give away, the bigger the price you're willing to pay in a healthy, God-honoring relationship, the more God's gonna bring it back to you. The more he's going to honor that, the more you're going to see your life, your heart, your mind, the people around you open up And Jesus set the stage and the pace. He paid this cost, whether you receive it or not. Me personally, I I, I don't think I would have done it, just to be totally candid with you. But I for sure wouldn't have done it if I didn't know if you were gonna take it. Like, I'll pay the price, but you just tell me it's worth it to you That's the only shot you had of me doing that for you. Jesus did it before you would even respond or know that you needed him to do it. That's sacrificial love. In 1 Corinthians, God points us forward. So far, we've used communion to look back. But in 1 Corinthians, it looks forward. Look at what it says. 1 Corinthians 11. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death, looking back, until he comes again. So there's a a historical perspective to the Last Supper, but there's also a Jesus coming again perspective. Eschatology, the end times, And so we we take communion as a statement of faith in what Jesus did and in what he will do. And so it's a statement of faith. I wanna ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. Together as a family, maybe you're watching online, maybe you're here in the room, but in just a moment, we're going to celebrate, we're going to commemorate the Last Supper through this Lord's Supper, communion. And as we do that, I wanna invite you to do so worshiping Jesus for those two things, servant leadership and sacrificial love. Servant leadership and sacrificial love. But I also wanna invite you to ask the Holy Spirit to do a heart check in your life. Say, "How, how am I doing on servant leadership and sacrificial love? If you're here today or maybe watching online and you're not yet a follower of Christ, This is something that, as we just saw, is a statement of faith. So if you're not there yet, as I said earlier, we're thrilled that you're a part of this church family and this experience, but we would ask you just to let this moment pass as you maybe consider and think about what does it really mean? What does it mean for you personally? But in this moment, I wanna invite you to pray, a prayer of reflection, prayer of confession as we prepare to take the elements together as a family in just a moment. the elements there with you in your hand go ahead and take the wafer as we've already seen today Jesus said this bread represents my body which is broken for you eat in remembrance of me And then in the same way, he took the cup, and he said, this is my blood in the new covenant, which is shed for you. Drink in remembrance of me. I want to ask you to remain with your heads bowed for a moment. Just for a moment, I want to I want to just ask you this question. As you weigh this fact of Easter, the fact that God in human form went to the cross for you in your place, like he did in mine. so that you could be, I could be forgiven of every sin. Everything that would get between God and me, between God and you. Have you accepted that gift? Just very simply, have you chosen to respond to that grace initiative. Confess your sins. Accept the gift of his grace and forgiveness. And choose to follow him as teacher and Lord, the director of your life, the leader of your life. If you're a part of this worship service, this experience, and you've never done that, we wanna give you the opportunity to do it right now. You don't have to wait for Easter or Christmas or pass a test or a series of tests. You just have to decide to trust Jesus more than you trust yourself, to follow him. If you'd like to take that step, then we just invite you to pray a prayer of commitment, a prayer of beginning, just silently talk to him and say something like this. Just say, Lord, I need you. I recognize the sacrifice you made on my behalf. That you became the perfect sacrifice. And so, Lord, I confess my sin to you to claim your forgiveness, accepting this gift. And in response, I will follow you with everything I have. I pray this prayer in your name. If that was your prayer in this place, or maybe online, you're praying in a coffee shop or in your home somewhere know as a church we honor that and celebrate that with you we want to help with what's next in just a minute we'll we'll give you some help on how to make that happen we'll offer some help but if that was your prayer would you just raise your hand just quietly but unmistakably raise your hand up high over your head and know that as a church we celebrate that with you We honor that. And our family tradition around here is we're gonna put our hands together and tell you welcome home. Welcome home.